Pod Pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I'm your host, Nicole Davis. The word lens is incredibly relevant to today's episode because my guest is Parisa Tagizadi, who goes by the name Tag, and she is a stills photographer for film and television. And this is a job that I was so curious to find out more about because stills are often the very first glimpse we get of a film. You know, we might hear about who's been cast or that production is underway, but when that photograph is released, it's our first visual encounter with the film and, and our sense of what it might look like or be like. So it, it seems to me like a really important role. Tag has an extensive and varied career working with directors such as Jane Campion, Sally Potter, Michael Winterbottom, Edgar Wright and Steve McQueen on both studio and independent productions such as Top of the Lake, Killing Eve, Slow West, The Small Axe Anthology and upcoming films like Last Night in Soho and Last Letter from Your Lover. We talk about Tag's career from art school to getting her big break, in inverted commas, as well as the mechanics of the role and how she's able to get those shots, and why being both discreet and pushy are key traits on set. I had a really brilliant time recording this interview, so I hope you enjoy listening to it. This is episode 79 of Best Girl Grip. I guess where I usually like to start is just getting a sense of like where you went to university, if you did, and what you studied there. So I basically, I went to, I did go to university. I went to, but I went to art school. So I, and I studied fine art. So I came to the world of photography very much from the fine art perspective. And what happened, and and I actually went to study fine art painting and found that it was a very untraditional course in that they kind of tried to do everything to sort of turn upside down on its head this notion of what it means to actually be a painter or an artist. So it was really thinking outside the box, which was which was brilliant. So very sort of progressive contemporary art school. So by the time that I left, I was actually making sort of photographic installations, taking pictures of doorways and blowing them up massive and then placing them in the doorway, you know, kind of right. that that kind of work. And so then I'm wondering if you had a sense of the career that you wanted to pursue, you know, was it the kind of photography route that you were definitely tied to? So the career that I wanted to pursue, I mean, in my head, I definitely wanted to be an artist. That was kind of like, I wanted to create art in one, in, in some form or another. I was watching telly late one night when I was in my third year at art school. And I came across this short film because I was also, I started to sort of show interest in film and photography, or if you like, sort of, you know, art as kind of as, as a sort of lens-based medium. I was watching these sh- sort of short experimental films and I came across this one film that really blew me away. It was this 20 minute film and it was made by a, a filmmaker called Annie Griffin. And um, I, I just loved it. I was like, oh my God, this is the kind of thing I want to make, you know, where it's not too sort of ethereal and it's not too conceptual. It's it's clearly, it, it's very clear what it is, but it's also kind of, you know, layered and thoughtful. And it was, it was just, it was just a brilliant little piece. It was the, the, the short film was called Out of Reach. Hmm. Anyway, I left art school and then I went and I did some internship in a production company that made soundtracks for films I, I kind of managed to get in there because I knew people that worked in the in, in right. uh, music uh, so through the music world I ended up in this production company and started sort of reading scripts and all of that and because I then had to kind of find a real job but I realized that I really wanted to do something in line with my interests I wrote to this lady I found her production company's name and I wrote to her and I said listen I love your work can I work for you so that you can teach me everything I need to know. And she said, <laughs> yeah, why not come along? So I did. I ended up working for her, for Annie Griffin, for three years. Wow. So, but, but she was the person writing and producing and directing all her own sort of mm. 
films, documentaries, spoof documentaries, dramas, all sorts of things. She was doing all of that and I was her, a, her assistant, her office manager, her coordinator. She then left London and moved to Glasgow. I stayed in London, but carried on in that world of production coordinating, mm -hmm. which I ended up then hating because it sort of became the office job that was paying the bills and had nothing to do with the path that I was about to follow or had gone in to do, you know. But I always had a camera and I was always shooting and I was taking, doing things like, you know, pictures of houses at night through windows and, you know, all sorts of my own kind of ideas and conceptual mm -hmm. concepts. But carried on working in production for about seven years. And then eventually my friend who then went on to work for an arts organization called Art Angel was doing all their PR. And she said, listen, we need someone to come in and take photographs of the pieces. Are you available to do it? And I absolutely jumped at the opportunity and started doing that. I started taking publicity pictures for arts mm -hmm. events that would then get published in magazines and newspapers. And then the transition then basically happened when I decided that if I wanted to be a freelance photographer, I had to extract myself from this world of, yeah, from the world of production completely and, and go my own freelance route, which I ended up doing, um, taking my portfolio to places. And this was still at the time when magazines were publishing, were actually employing photographers mm -hmm. to publish their work. It's, it soon happened, stopped after the digital <laughs> world. Everything yeah. went online and then digital photography came in, all of that kind of stopped. But it was still at the time when that was happening. But I did find it very, very hard. What ended up happening is that I was introduced then to uh, Michael Winterbottom's production company because they were going off to make a film called In This World, mm -hmm. which was shooting in Iran, Pakistan and, and, uh, and Turkey. And they needed some Iranian contacts. And right. Annie Griffin actually put me in touch with that company. And I right. jumped to the opportunity and I was like, oh, my God yes <laughs> tell you what why don't you why don't you take me along as your photographer and I will translate for you while we're in Iran and they did wow nice <laughs> that's actually how I landed my first stills photography job from having gone from production into it and was it a career or was it a position that existed or because it imagines to me like something that kind of you know it's become obviously more um abundant now that marketing is such a big thing and you know production yeah. companies spend so much on marketing that I imagine yeah. they're more willing to invest in that did you find yes, that, that that the appetite grew as you were doing it very much so and it's also it's also become a very competitive field because there is mm. so there because so much content is now being made yeah. and so many new ways of publicizing films that you kind of have to always, you know, think on your feet, not me personally, but actually the publicists and the people that are part of that whole marketing process yeah. have to be very innovative in their ways of how can we now sell this new film rather than just another picture on Instagram or whatever, you know, it's, 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 it, and it's forever changing. Yes, the position did exist because you still needed images that would go out to festival brochures and to mm. magazines and newspapers. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure that what I was doing had been around kind of pretty much from the birth of you know how yeah. one films basically yeah. yeah and did jobs start coming you know quite quickly after you'd established yourself or was it still a lot of hard graft yeah, to get regular work because the, the 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 sort of path that my own life took so I um so basically I was able to live in the states but I wasn't able to work there and uh and I was having kids there so six years of that chunk of my mm -hmm. life was kind of occupied elsewhere but soon after that we moved to New Zealand and my husband's a New Zealander, so we moved there mm. and migrated there and lived there for five years. And it was actually then that it all started mm -hmm. because it was a 
smaller industry, a lot less competitive and not many people doing what I did. Mm. So I kind of had this sort of revelation one night thinking, this is the place to actually build the portfolio. This is where the competition is a lot yeah. less. And I can, I can just go out there and, and push. And, and a good friend of my husband, who happens to be a film lawyer, kind of got me on board and he said, I'll introduce you to some producers and publicists and whoever you want to know. And then I heard that Jane Campion was making Top of the Lake. Amazing. There, <laughs> and that became my mission <laughs> to get that job. And luckily I did. So that basically opened everything up. Yeah. But then living in New Zealand, it was not an industry that was consistently making projects. It wasn't constantly making film and TV. Yeah. So it was happening quite sporadically. So there'd be times when I'd be really, really busy with work and then there'd be nothing for like mm. months on end. When I moved back to the UK, the, one of the first things I did is I contacted all the BBC lot who mm. had got me on board with, um, with Top of the Lake and yeah. said, I'm back. You know, and amazingly, they remembered me and they sort of brought me in for a meeting and I had sat around a group of like six or seven people from the marketing department. I was quite overwhelmed because I was yeah. like, yeah, we, can, we will have a look at your CV, call you when we need you, that kind of thing. But no, they were quite, you know, they were quite adamant that no, no, we'll definitely get you in for some work. And so things started to trickle in mm-hmm. back then. Yeah. So this was around 2015. And coming back to like Top of the Lake, I'm wondering how do you actually secure a job? You know, is it just on the basis of your portfolio? Are you having to talk through what you envision? Like, how do you say, yes, I'm the right person for this project? I think with every job, it slightly differs because now it's very different to what it was like back then when I was starting out. You know, back then you're sort of working your way through the dark. You really don't know from how you get the jobs. I mean, I guess with that, with Top of the Lake, it was a, it was a particular one because it just so happened that Jane Campion happened to like the work that I made, even though I wasn't very experienced. I'd only done one job. I mean, she could have chosen pretty much any other stills photographer she wanted, but it was just lucky that she happened to like the work that I made because it was slightly different Mm. to the usual stuff that she saw. So that was a bit of a unique thing. But nowadays it's really different because now it's like you, you end up working on a certain type of film. Then what happens is that the, the smart producers and publicists, they kind of, they, they marry the correct film to the correct photographer, if you know what I mean. It's like, it's a good match. Mm-hmm. And they know ah, she'll be able to get emotional scenes with lots of, I don't know, complicated characters or whatever. And they'll kind of, you know, or that photographer will do brilliantly with action or this one mm-hmm. will do particularly, you know, so they'll, they'll know. When you, when you get a call about a job that is completely off the charts in terms of your radar, yeah. then you realise they're really running out of photographers. <laughs> <laughs> running out of crew and how are you yourself preparing for a shoot or a project you know are you selecting a certain type of camera that you think is going to suit you know the shoot yeah like oh the genre of the film best you know what are you doing in that regard yes so the, the cameras basically we used to use these um we used to use regular kind of dslrs and we they would be housed within what we would call a sound blimp and the blimp was basically a silencer it was a silencer for your shutter to not go off but it was a really cumbersome annoying box that you'd have to use and it you know it was just this kind of clunky thing and anyway so then the sort of uh, mirrorless revolution happened and the cameras that came in had silent shutters so that's what we use i'm not i don't get particularly excited about cameras as gadgets and I, i'm not i'm so not a tech head at all right. <laughs> You know, like yeah. the camera department start talking about lenses and T-stops and what have you. And then, Glazer. you know, like, I'm really interested. And then it's like, okay, you've completely lost me. I just need to know what happens in this little thing. Yeah. So I can do it. 
So I go on with a couple of lenses that I will use always, but my kind of zoom lens that I can, you know, be discreet with and far away from the, from the action and, and mm-hmm. capture the things I need. And then I'll have my, uh, they're, they're both zoom lenses, actually, they just have a different range. So the camera is always pretty much the same. And obviously I have a backup camera. So I walk around with one camera and two lenses that I alternate the whole time. And then in terms of actually preparing for the job, I'll always have to read a script. So I read the script and then make in my in my own little thing I make very clear notes as to the days that I think seem visually interesting or these are the things that are going to sell the film these are shots of like the two main characters and they happen to be the two sort of famous people that everyone's going to want to see the first look of so I need to know that these are those are going to be the great moments so I'll make a list of those and then we will have an exchange with either producers or publicists and then often we sort of agree on the same type of things Mm. and then and then I'll be on set on the days that those scenes are being filmed and I mean I'm fascinated by how you then go about getting these shots because it's so such, it must be such a tough thing to, yeah, as you say, you have to be discreet, you kind of have to be invisible. Are you taking the shots as they're acting? Are they happening in rehearsal? Are they sometimes staged? Like, yeah, what is happening? It's, it's a combination. Well, I can tell you how I prefer to work and then mm. actually tell you the reality of how it okay. does work. Yes, please. So in, a, in an ideal job, you'll have a very, very chilled cast who um, are not particularly phased by an additional camera on set. So what I like to do is I, I, li- I like to, I like to, take the pictures while the filming is happening during takes, which means kind of being very, very close to the camera and being quite still and very ninja-like and very discreet and always dressed in black to make sure that you're really not in their eye line, you're not yeah. grabbing their attention. So that that tends to be how I like to shoot. And I end up getting my best shots because I know that they're not noticing me. What tends to often happen though, is that you will get into some kind of problem area with an actor who doesn't want the extra body on set or the director who has a particular protecting their space you know Mm. that kind of thing so it's very much a sort of game in diplomacy and negotiating Mm. and I always say to people that if you want to do this it's not it's not something that I think any photographer can do you can be the best photographer in the world but have absolutely no clue about set etiquette and how to navigate your way in that environment because you are always going to be the person that's going to get in the way you're always the person you're not there to help speed up the process of filming which is what everyone is there to do you know a grip is there to assist the camera so that the camera can hurry up and get the job you know everybody is there to help it move forward whereas I'm always there to slow it down long term it's a completely different thing because I'm part of the process of selling the film but on the day you're not thinking like that so it always helps when you're working with a professional cast and crew who know and respect your role because then they'll always make that space for you. The other thing is that the actors are really the most powerful people. We like to think it's producers and directors, but actually (laughs) replace a director and producer. You can't really replace an actor when filming has already started. It's crucial. My relationship with them is absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. Um, So I will always create a, a connection on my first day when I work with them, I introduce myself and I say, I'm still a photographer. And I say to them that if I said, I'll, I'll shoot, I'll, I'll, I'll hover, I'll do a lot of hovering. I said, if it's ever dis- ever distracting, just let me know and I'll, and I'll step away. And they always appreciate that because often it is distracting. And what tends to happen then is they kind of then leave you to do your thing because you realize that you've respected what they're doing is quite difficult. Yeah. So that's the key thing. And then it's about your relationship with the ADs and your relationship with the camera crew. Mm. You know, and everybody else who you're being in a physical space with, because it's like you have to be there. So you can't, you, you know, you got to be liked, if you know what I mean. Mm. <laughs> you gotta, if you're going to do this job, job, don't be difficult. 
For sure. And I'm wondering how, obviously, like the look of the film is so important, but, you know, on in production, it still has yet to be graded. It still has yet to be edited. How are you kind of making sure that what you're capturing is what the film is then going to look like? So I will watch very closely what the DOP is doing. I can't often get in the, I can't often sort of frame things in the way that they do because they they have got the best framing, basically. Yeah. So I will, I'll be slightly off, but trying to be kind of true to the vision of the film as much as I can. But there's another element to that as well, which is that you kind of have to trust that you've got to sell a good photograph. So say, for example, what they're filming is not very well lit or not particularly well framed. I think it's absolutely fine to choose your own framing and your own way of grading because you know that's the thing that's going to be the more sellable image. You know that that's the thing that's the more provocative, yeah. interesting, What you know, so that's my personal take. Some people might be horrified by that <laughs> thought because like, it's not true to the film. And if it's not true to the film, sure, we'll do something and grade it differently to make it look more like the film. Mm. But I will always check and see what they're doing with the grading. So we'll have the DIT on set yeah. who works closely with the DOP and then does all the, you know, does mm. all the grading actually there and then so it's very helpful to see where it goes from like a raw image to then a processed image yeah. is quite interesting and often what I'm coming up with isn't very different to what they're mm-hmm. coming up with really because we're all shooting raw anyway and what you're shooting is just is is, is how things are lit mm. and, and then I'll go off and I'll do a bit of grading and I'll do a bit of editing and cleaning things up and straightening images up and just just to make it just look a bit cleaner and then, you know, could we maybe also talk about some specific shots that you've um, shot recently? Because I'm very enamoured with the one that you did for Lovers Rock and Steve McQueen and obviously the last night in Soho images. You know, what was your experience like on, on those sets and working with yeah. those directors and actors? Yeah, both in, very different. I mean, both obviously very well esteemed, very well respected, known directors. Again, you know, you create the relationship that you need to create with them and then you step out of their way because you, again, with them... <laughs> Especially you don't want to be constantly present. Yeah. You don't want to be asking them questions. Do you know what I mean? So you kind of, you make sure that they, that they trust you and you have to, you have to make sure mm-hmm. that you're behaving. So that's good. So with, with Steve McQueen, he's, he's a really interesting director because both him and Edgar Wright, actually, they have such a unique way of working and they have such unique visions. Mm-hmm. And what's great about working with directors like that is that because they have that kind of look, they sort of want you to be as creatively free in your thinking as right. you like which is great. So I didn't have very much interference really yeah. in terms yeah. of like what they were seeing, especially with Edgar, actually what he was seeing, he was, he was quite happy with, which was brilliant. So I just carried, mm-hmm. so he kind of gave me the freedom to just carry on doing what I was doing yeah. instinctively. Last night in Soho, I was on set every day mm-hmm. with small acts. It was only specific chosen days, which mm-hmm. makes it harder because you have to make sure on that one day when you're kind of establishing your relationship with everyone, you also have to walk away getting great shots. Interestingly, the images from small acts that got the most release were the ones from Lovers Rock, that sort of, I remember the party scene I kept, that was, for me, it was a dreaded night because it was literally a steady cam. Well, the, the DOP was the one who was operating the camera on like yeah. a low stool, just working his way through this small space in a very dimly lit kind of what felt like a smoky party. And I kind of just had to duck and dive and, and figure out what it, it was. It was a really particularly hard shoot that night mm. for me. And I walked away with a set of pictures thinking none of these are usable, literally none of them are usable, but 
for some reason it became very popular. That scene became really popular yeah. in Lovers Rock. And so a bunch of images were released, which is great. But it wasn't it, that that particular night wasn't a very easy one. But both innovative, fantastic directors to work with because they they've got such strong visions and you just kind of trust mm. theirs and you know feel lucky enough to just be there to, to to capture that. It's good that it's mutual as well. You'd sometimes think that the stronger the vision maybe the more um on a leash you would feel to kind of yeah, work with that. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? But I just think i think when someone is very confident in their own vision they have less reason to fight you if you know what i mean i can't mm. quite explain that but it's something about kind of like they know exactly who they are and 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 what they do so they kind of trust that other people on their set have been brought in to yeah. do their job as well and thinking about lovers rock and walking away not sure if you've got it i mean i'm wondering like how you know when your job's done i mean Presumably, if you just have, you know, one day on set or however many days, you just have to walk away and hope for the best. Well, this is it. This is it. And and often you don't. And often you sometimes you do walk away feeling like you've mm. hardly got anything. But as long as you've got something, I guess that's better than nothing. You know, and most of the time, you know, you're shooting what, you know, maybe anything between two scenes to five scenes in one day's filming. And out of all of that, you're bound to walk away with something good, providing everything is in place, providing, you know, you're fine with the actors, you're fine with the crew and all of that. You know, you're always going to walk away with something. And if, and if what they, you know, Killing Eve is actually a really good example because they, that was a job again, that I loved and really enjoyed because they had a very clear vision of how things were being shot. And I was always, always had access to those almost to exactly the same frame because they'd always make that time for you at the end. So if you couldn't get in there, you know, and because it was TV, the the Mm. scenes were turned out a lot quicker than it is on features. Right. So as soon as that scene was done, Mm. they like it gave you the space to jump in and do the to, and and to sort of almost like yeah. recreate it for you right okay you know and then some actors are really good at that so Jodie Comer was particularly good at that so she'd be like okay okay redo them okay great so we did this and then we did that and then she'd you know they'd literally like stop and just reenact it for you while you just shot shot you know given maybe about 20 to 30 seconds of those moments to walk away with, with, with a handful of good images. Oh, that's interesting. Because that's how I envisioned it happening, weirdly, as opposed to like you doing it in yeah. scene. I imagine they have this yeah. like, weird moment where they're like staging. <laughs> yeah. I'll get what I can when I'm, when they're filming. If I feel like I've got some good stuff in the process of the filming, then I'll just leave it and I won't disrupt anything. But mm. if it hasn't been quite great, like if the angle is just slightly off because yeah. I couldn't get in the right place and there's like a stand sticking out the back of the actor's head or something, then I will just say that that's a shot worth fighting for and mm. I'll go and speak to the AD and I'll say I need to get that and then they'll always know okay I'll, I'll make sure I give you that time. Did it take you a while to kind of own that voice of being like actually I know this is wrong and I need to step in here? When you've got the level when you've got the sort of people behind you expecting you to deliver mm. right then that then you kind of put the pressure on yourself and yes it does take you t- it definitely took a while for that voice to come through I mean there were days in those early days where I just feel like choking up because it was like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't get, I can't believe they didn't make space for me. And it's like, they won't make space for you. You do have to fight for that space. And so, and and then they get that, they get that you have to fight for that space and they kind, you know, so, so it kind of becomes easier. And then there, you know, and then there are times when it's like, it's such a brilliant comp. Everything about the shot is perfect. This is the selling image that, and you know, you will, you will absolutely fight tooth and nail to get that shot. (laughs) you've got to pick your moments if it's if it's something that's kind of like eh, it's okay not worth fighting for leave it not yeah. worth it given that that's maybe the hardest part of a job I'm wondering kind of what your favorite part of the job is is it being there in the moment or is it seeing how it turns out at the end 
Yeah, well, you kind of like, as you're shooting nowadays, well, because we have monitors behind our cameras and stuff, the joy is when, as you're shooting and you just know, oh my God, I've got some really good ones here. <laughs> that is wonderful. And so it's almost like you kind of know as you're doing it. Mm. It's, it's not so much when you go away and download everything because it's like when you know you've got it, when you know you've got like a handful of great shots mm. in there, you know, and then they make themselves evident when you download everything and you see them. So I think that probably is the best part is knowing that at the end of this next three or four days, I'm going to choose my favourite shots and send them to producers and they'll, and they'll hopefully be really happy. And then, you know, we spoke about obviously, you know, picking the right moments and being able, I guess, to kind of read people. And um, what other skills do you think make a good stills photographer? I think it's a really fine balance. I think it's it's knowing how to navigate your way through a film set. It's knowing how to be good with people, knowing, just having people trust you, having actors trust you, being able to be discreet, but pushy when you need to be. So yeah. it's all quite a fine balance. And I, to be honest with you, I do think it takes a certain personality type. I really do. You know, the type of photographer that kind of, you know, like owns their own whole space and, it, you know, has their kingdom is not always the kind of photographer that's going to work very well in that, in that environment. I should also add that there is a whole other element to our job as well, which is what we call the special shoot or the gallery shoot, okay. which is a, it's, it's a completely different thing. So what happens then is that you do have a studio and you right. do have your own lighting equipment and you have, you have your assistants and, you know, the backdrop and you have makeup and costume and everybody. And they're all very specifically there for that marketing shoot. Right. And that's what they will end up often using for the posters. So what they do is they'll bring and then the cast will come in either in ones or twos and you have these kind of single shots of them in character against yeah. this backdrop. So that, that that's, a, that's a separate type of shoot, which often us as unit photographers, we're asked to do the very big studio jobs. It's a completely different ball game because then they'll bring in the famous photographers to do those jobs. Right, okay. It's to do with space, isn't it? Because, yeah, as you say, they're kind of, in, in those shoots, they're coming into your space, whereas you're kind of entering the filmmaker's space on a, on a set. So it's kind of, yeah, yeah. negotiating yeah. that. Exactly. And then the um, other thing I find really interesting is that it's a department of one, right? You're a single team. And does that get lonely? Is that difficult? Who do you look to for advice or support? So the thing is, your department is publicity. So mm. you have a publicist that sometimes is there all the time but more often than not they're not there at all but they're the people who are going to fight your corner you don't and sometimes you just you go on jobs where there, there is no publicist and they are the ones I, I don't particularly like those jobs because they're just really hard because I don't think all producers necessarily understand the whole process of what we do whereas publicists do because they have to work very closely with photographers so that always helps so I guess the head of my department would be the publicist but often yes we're totally left to our own devices because the publicist doesn't come on set they'll be sort of somewhere a little bit off set um, but you're the one who's physically on set so it, it can it be lonely I tell you when it can be lonely it can be lonely when Every department is offered a cup of tea by by someone in their department, but you never are. <laughs> or they'll go off and get a whole bunch of coffees, but it's yeah. like you're sort of standing there a little bit like, oh. <laughs> but then the, the difference also is that we have many a moments in between that we can actually go off and do our own thing. So that's sure. that's definitely, you know, I'm not I don't have to be on set all the time, which is good. And it, it works so well for me because my personality type is one that really likes to be around people, but I also love my own solitary space. Mm. So it's like, in a way, it couldn't be better. You know, in terms of like a network, is that like, you know, I know that um, cinematographers have the, the BSC that they kind of strive towards. You you get invited, I think. Does stills photography have the same kind of body? You know, what does not that in the, not, like? 
Not in the UK. Um, right. I know in the States they have one, but there isn't one as such here. But we do all have our own little Facebook groups, which is great. We are, that's our own little gorilla, you know, body, if you like, where yeah. one person will administer it and everyone else will just like chip in, ask questions, have a rant, share ideas, you know, talk about rates, which is a fantastic, it's been one of the best things actually, mm-hmm. because it's very good for us to all set a precedent and know that no one's going to try and basically dick you over. <laughs> So that's a fantastic support network that um, I think every group should have. Yeah, for sure. How how hard was that to kind of know how much to charge at the beginning when maybe you didn't have that precedent? Yeah, there was always kind of like a standard rate. I mean, that mm. didn't take very take an enormous amount of research to do. But then, but then what would happen is like then you know very kind of independent films would come to you and they'd be like, listen, we have a really crap budget, but we have a great actor on board. And on the basis of that, then you realise you can yeah. end up with some great shots of a great actor which can work really well for your portfolio. Right. So you'll take it. You know, and I think anybody in their right mind would. But that is kind of during the early days, whereas now I don't need to do that so much anymore. And I'm wondering how you stay kind of creatively energized and and focused and, and, and what same. motivates you. Yeah. And what motivates you to keep doing the job that you do? Yeah. I guess, you know what, I think the more, I think we're just living in creatively, I think we are in terms of film and TV. It's such an exciting time because so much interesting, brilliant content is coming out all the time. So I think if anything, it's it's that, it's looking at imagery. Well, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a boring answer because it's saying there's so much great stuff coming out and there's always great new stuff to shoot. But you do have to keep yourself thinking creatively differently. So I will sort of follow people on Instagram that have, for example, nothing to do with the world, the f- film world that I work in, because mm-hmm. I think that can really narrow your vision as somebody sure. creative. So I'll look at some, you know, conceptual photographers, or I look at, you know, some old, much, much older photojournalists, or, you know, follow stories that take me on a completely different path because that's it's just different methods of storytelling isn't it and it's different Mm. ways of looking at the world and different ways of understanding your own craft and your own media and do you do that with photography as a craft anyway just kind of honing your practice shooting things other than actors and on film sets just to kind of yeah I I used to do I used to do my own projects a lot more than I do nowadays and in fact that was because I came from that kind of whole fine art background that was my that was kind of the thing that would always drive me was always about wanting to make my it, it was about my own art practice mm. that's the reason I wanted to be a photographer because I definitely miss that because I miss the I miss the dialogue around it I miss the conversation around it a few years ago I was part of this uh, a set of images that I made won the pride photo award it just kind of happened by chance to be mm-hmm. honest I was taking pictures of my son at the time who was dressing up as a little girl and anyway it, it won the pride photo award and there was so much conversation around it and I love being part of those conversations so you kind of you miss I miss a lot of that stuff, but I don't do that stuff anymore. And I think a lot of it is because it it, it needs a lot of time, thinking, brewing, mm. researching, and then going out there and actually making the work is quite time consuming. You can do it over a period of years, you know, an ongoing project, but I know how time consuming things like that is and having a family and then working, it literally takes up my whole yeah. life. And then I'm wondering if there's a project that, that you've worked on that you consider to be the most gratifying or the most fun. You know, what's the thing that you remember most? I would definitely say Killing Eve was one of those really good ones. I loved working on Killing Eve. It was brilliant because visually and the the, the actors were fantastic, all of that stuff. Oh, I worked on a film a few uh, two and a half years ago called The Secret Garden. And it was a sort of remake of the original book. And uh, And it was just one of those wonderful jobs where it was the summer that the sun shone every day I don't think we had a day of rain it was like two years ago maybe two summers ago three summers ago something like that and it was and you were working with kids 
And it was just one of those jobs where everyone was happy. And in fact, the makeup designer on this job that I'm working on now was also the makeup designer. And we just yesterday we were talking about what a lovely job that was. You know, so sometimes it's kind of just about the people, the people that you're working with that makes it so mm. nice. Uh, and the environments, we were traveling all across the country and filming in beautiful old gardens and stately homes and all that. I guess as well, though, it has to be about the people, right? Like that's kind of has to be part of the fun of it or what motivates you. Because if it was solely about the shot, it might get quite soul destroying. (laughs) Exactly. No, exactly. Very much so. Very much so about the kind of people you're working with, definitely. Mm. And then is there something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career or something that maybe you'd wish that you'd learn earlier in your career? I just wish I'd started doing what I'm doing now earlier. But, you know, but it's one of those things that's like, and yet at the same time, I haven't got any regrets because it's just happened to be the journey of my life and I wouldn't be where I am now had I not taken the path that I'd taken. Sure. But I think I find it, oh, something worth mentioning, actually. I find it physically quite demanding. Yeah, so I, I do find it physically demanding. And obviously the older I get, the hours of being on set in all sorts of weather conditions and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing is, you know, like two and a half weeks into the shoot and I'm kind of knackered. <laughs> so keep yourself fit. And then finally, what is a film from a woman director that you consider to be a bit of a hidden gem? Hidden gem? It's I I watched a film years ago that I didn't actually realise the director was a woman. Um, I think her name is Suzanne Beer, is that right? Yeah, yeah I think she's Dana, 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 That's right. And I'm just um, in a... In a better world. In a better world. Thank you. Do you know the film I'm talking about? I do know the film you're talking about. It's fantastic. I think it, yes. I want to say it won a best foreign language Oscar, maybe. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. But I do remember watching that years ago and thinking, oh my God, that's actually really moved me. And I thought it was brilliant. And I didn't even realise it was a female director. Not that it should have even made a difference, but but it was really nice when later I found out that it was. Yeah, and she's she, an interesting director, right? She's kind of had this like under the radar career. You kind of discover that she's like directed a lot of things you've actually heard of or seen. Exactly, exactly. It's really interesting. And she has a very under the radar, so she doesn't seem to have much of a kind of like a, you know, in the way that a lot of female directors kind of become these sort of iconic characters, mm-hmm. you know, they sort of become these personas almost because of, because of the fact that they're women operating in that world. Whereas she's always gone a bit kind of under the radar. You know what I mean? She's, yeah. it's, it's not a name that necessarily pops up like, you know, I don't know, Sally Potter or Jane Campion or, you know, the people who we associate mm-hmm. with women in film. So, yeah, no, I think she's a really interesting director. Tag, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been such a joy. That was brilliant. That was great. Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. If you're particularly interested in photography or cinematography, I recommend listening to my interviews with Rena Yang and Rachel Clark. I'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. But in the meantime, have a fab Easter weekend. Mm-hmm.